You're listening to the Jewish Currents podcast on the nose. I am Josh Leifer, a contributing editor at Jewish Currents, and I'm here in Tel Aviv with Oren Ziv, photojournalist for 972 and local call Sichama Komit. Hello, Oren. Hello. Thank you for having me. Of course. I wanted to talk to Oren today because Oren's work and active stills have provided the images for much of the last decade of struggles for justice and Israel-Palestine. And I wanted to have the opportunity to talk with Oren about his work and how he's seen things change on the ground over the years that he's been working. So with that introduction, Oren, maybe you can tell us a little bit about both how you started working as a photojournalist and also how Active Stills got started. Yes, sure. So I grew up in Haifa in the early 2000s uh, during the beginning of the Second Intifada. And while most Israeli public uh, was going to the right, a process that we see till today, I started uh, to read and to get involved uh, with different activities in uh, my hometown. And through that I got to uh, different uh, demonstrations, both inside Israel and later in the West Bank uh, against the wall. And quite early on I took my camera because I wanted to have some purpose in the demo and to feel I'm doing something and to help to to document at that time before social media and cell phone photography of course in many of the demonstration nobody would document it even if the mainstream media would document it you wouldn't have access to these materials and many times they would come but not uh, publish it so this is how I started photography from the beginning it was a political act for me in uh, 2005 uh, during the beginning of the demonstrations against the separation uh, wall in Bilin, near Ramallah, a village that later became uh, the symbol of the resistance against the wall and the land grab. I met uh, three other photographers, two Israelis and one Argentinian. And after a few months of documenting in the village the demonstrations, but also the daily life and the raids of the army on the village as a collective punishment, we sat together because there were many photographers, uh, journalists, uh, students for photography and just uh, people who came to document. Uh, but what brought us together was the, the idea to use photography as a tool for social and political change, as an activist tool. And we sat together and we wanted to create an exhibition. And it was just before the residents of the village uh, went to the Supreme Court to appeal against the wall and the land grab. And we decided to do a street exhibition, first of all because we didn't have the budget and the connections to present in a proper gallery or in a museum, but more importantly because we wanted to reach the Israeli public, the general public, uh, because Berlin is only a few dozen kilometers from uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, but in the mainstream media, even when they would report about the village, they would report about the clashes or if a soldier was injured, but you'd never hear why the protests were taking place. And this is why we sat together and decided to do a street exhibition. This was basically our first action. For those who maybe haven't followed the popular struggles in Bil-In, can you tell us a little bit about what those protests were like? Why was it so important for you guys as journalists to be there? And, and what was the difference between what you were seeing and what Israeli media was reporting about what was happening there. So basically the struggle against the war 
started in 2002 and 2003 in different villages. And usually the model was that people would protest every week where the bulldozers were working. And Bilin brought something new to the Swahili say, saying that there would be, or deciding there would be a general demonstration every Friday in order to get the attention of the international community, of the media, even of local activists. It's better to do one main event, one march after the Friday prayer. So on Friday, people would march from the mosque to the lands, trying to get to the lands where the bulldozers were working. And of course, on the way, 99% of the time, the army would prevent it and would shoot tear gas, rubber-coated bullets, uh, stun grenades, and even uh, live ammunition, and prevent from the people even reaching there. And in Berlin, they would do this march that many times had creative activities and direct action, uh, tying themselves to the olive trees or in different uh, con uh, structures from metal they built to block the work. And later, after the army would attack the demo and also many times raid the village, uh, the youth would clash with the army, but on mainstream media it was always focusing on the stone throwing, on the clashes, but more importantly not even mentioning why people are protesting there. So when I would come back from this demo to Tel Aviv, on the taxi, on the bus, uh, on the way back, you would hear sometimes a short report, but they wouldn't even talk about the fact that 60% of the, of the village land are taken by uh, the war later in 2000 and Seven, the Supreme Court they ruled that some of these lands would be brought back to Berlin. But this was much before, and, and this gap of information was really important for us to bring to the Israeli cities. So the, the street exhibition was not only randomly putting posters, like you see sometimes invitation to demonstrations or political posters. It was organizing a grid, so it would look like an exhibition, and also that it would be easy to hang, because of course, according to municipality laws, it's illegal and also there was a text so it was very important for us that in addition to the photos you'd have a text that would put it in a political context. And so the exhibition went off and it, it then people saw it and, and came? Yes again because it was before social media so we printed postcards saying in which locations in the city it would be and every night we'd go to renew it if it was destroyed by the rain or by people uh, that didn't like it, of course, when you present in the street, so people take it off. And in this exhibition, in the exhibition that followed this one, we always came back the day after to see the reactions of people. It was very interesting. Sometimes people would write things on, look, talk. Uh, as I said, the text was an important part, so many times you'd see people would rip off or erase the text before the photos. What is the breakdown in terms of the backgrounds of the different members of the active stills. How many are Israeli? How many are Palestinian? How many are international? Do you have to do anything to become part of the collective? Other than, like, how, does, how does it work? So today, I would say it's a bit more than third Israelis, third internationals, or Israelis that left permanently to live abroad, and third Palestinians, something like that, 50% women, and people who want to join contact us and I think the best maybe way to explain what is activists is I think that most photographers thought we're activists and many of the activists at least in the beginning thought we're photographers so we're somewhere in the middle but for us it's also important that despite the fact we're activists that the photography quality will be very high and also the journalistic standard so we would always write like the captions as I said the text is very important for us we 
we, we're trying to use radical language and not the same language that AP would use, but still to be very accurate if we're talking about numbers, about facts, even before social media and fake news. So we have our website that has uh, almost 100,000 photos. It's an archive that is open basically to the, to the public uh, from different struggles. And it was important for us that it will be online and accessible. And so if Belin is where it all begins, how did things progress for the collective? How did you decide that active stills would be the container for the kind of work that the other photographers were doing? So first of all, we decided on the name because we didn't want to sign for our names, not to get the fines <laughs> to our address. Uh, so we decided on a collective name, on active stills, and we opened a website. At the time, we put photos and maps and the exhibition. And later we decided just to continue to work as a collective, meaning we're not an NGO and not an agency or a company. More people join, and also Palestinian members and international members. And the idea was to have a group that we could do political work through photography together. And a lot of the work is not only to publish things or to photograph, it's also internal to support each other, all the things that personally I know from editing, Photoshop, how to make a story, how to think about a story, research, it's things that I learned from my colleagues, so it was also a learning platform and supporting each other, especially when you go to violent uh, events, exhausting events, uh, physically and psychologically, this was kind of a support group to us, and also, of course, because we all had the same cause, the idea was that we can document much more events and struggle, because we can split to different locations. At the time, we had the protest, the Palestinian popular struggle against the wall and settlement, some weekends you had 10 activities in different locations. And also in house demolitions and evictions, we could split and each one would document certain village, certain families, and then bring it together and we felt we have much more power in this way. For us, we try to create a model that the, we have relationship with the communities we document, meaning that we don't only come when we want, we try to come again and again. Many times people ask, why do you go every week to this demo? Why do you go to the, the Bedouin village of El Arakib again and again? It might be true that there's no news value, or at least in mainstream media perspective, or maybe the photos are the same every week, but for us, it was important to be there to show it's still continuing and to be with the people. And many times, even in Kivat Amal here in uh, Tel Aviv, a Mizrahi working class neighborhood that was evicted uh, for a rich uh, housing project, Many times we would come to document things the residents would need later to show in court uh, some violations of environment laws and so on. So we're not only looking on the news violence, although we believe all these struggles and communities we document should be on front pages, but also when there's a need from the people. So we try to build this, this connection that is not just one-sided. I'm glad you brought up that angle because I, what I wanted to ask you about was instances during your work where the fact that you or another active stills member was, was there actually ended up changing not just the way an event was covered, but actually had real legal material consequences. I can think of a few because we've known each other for a few years and, and I know your coverage, but I was wondering if there are any that come to your mind specifically about how your work clarified the reality of a, of a certain event that otherwise, if it was just Israeli mainstream media or the IDF or the police, that the reality of that story never would have come to light. So we can start for a, a very small example and maybe move to, to a bigger example. So a small example is that 
many years ago I went to a demonstration, supposed to be in some village in the West Bank, the police, as happens many times, blocked the bus of the Israeli activists on the way in a checkpoint entering the West Bank. People went down, protest there, the police arrested a few people, a regular situation in the West Bank uh, under military law and a few activists were arrested but falsely accused in attacking police officers and blocking the road and our photos showed that they were on the sidewalk. But this is not the important part. I, I don't delete my photos. I always keep all the material. And at that day, I, I, I sat with the lawyer of the assistant of the lawyer and I went through the photos. And in one of the photos that was very bad and even a bit blurry, you saw a policeman uh, photographing the demonstration. And they went with this photo to court saying the police was documenting this arrest and this event. And the judge told the police they have to expose this material and the police either because they really lost it or because they didn't want to show their material because it didn't show what they claimed, they dropped the case. So this is a, a small example but maybe the bigger and more important example is of Um uh, al a village in the Negev, Nakaba, unrecognized village. People who are citizens of Israel but Israel is evicting them in order to build a Jewish only village. Uh, there in 2018 there was supposed to take place a big demolition. Our member Karen Manor was there. She slept there a few nights waiting for the eviction when, of course, mainstream media didn't care about it. She was only there with a cameraman of Al Jazeera Arabic. And the police raided the village in five in the morning with automatic weapons and loads of riot police, of course, very differently from the rare occasions they evict uh, Israeli settlements or illegal outposts uh, when they do it on daylight and without weapons. And uh, Yakub Abu al a teacher and a resident of the village, drove his car with some of his belongings uh, down a small hill. The police, by mistake, thought he's going to carry a terror attack, started to shoot, other policemen started to shoot. He was injured, he hit a few policemen, one of them died later, and the police immediately declared this was a terror attack and he's a terrorist. And because Karen was on the ground, first of all in local call and in 972 we could publish testimonies from the ground of Karen and other people that said that this was false, that there was no terror attack. But even later, because Karen recorded some of the things on the ground with GPS markets and so on, we started to work on it. But it was very dark and hard to see and then the police, I think without noticing what they are doing, published a drone footage that showed the incident and by matching the video of Karen on the ground with the drone footage we could show that first of all the policeman shot Yakub Evelkian and only later he hit the policeman including Erez Levy that died that day and it got a lot of attention in in Israel and also international media and later we continued the investigation including going there and doing a reenactment and also later we found videos that showed that his lights were on when, while the police was claiming his lights was their main claim that he's a terrorist is because he drove without lights on his car and that the lights were turned off and we continued uh, this investigation showing the police there was lying and um, the story is still ongoing. So from 2006 to now is in some ways a long time and certainly as Israeli political reality looks different now than it did before. I think in the West Bank, the difference might be even more pronounced, at least until very recently, the weekly protests in most places had stopped. 
and the nonviolent popular resistance that had sprouted up mainly in, but not only in response to the wall had basically by, I don't know, 2012 even sort of petered out. I want to ask you how things have changed. I know that's a big question. Obviously, a lot has changed, but how, maybe to focus a little bit more, how the culture of protest or its frequency or the dynamics in Israel-Palestine have changed over the years that you've been covering these things. So, as you said, the demonstrations, the the weekly demonstration against the wall, because the wall was built and because of exhaustion and arrest and injuries, it kind of faded in 2012-2013. In recent years, we see more and more protests against the illegal farm outposts, meaning illegal outposts, even according to Israeli law, and many of them that use animals, uh, sheep or cows, to take over a big area of land. And many of the protests in El Mouraire, where a 16-year-old boy was killed two weeks ago in Bet Dajan, in Kadum, against a settlement, a bigger settlement, Kadumim, but we see the focus of the struggle more towards the, the settlement, which I think on the day-to-day base is the thing that really uh, disturbs the Palestinians who live around them, at least if not all the Palestinians, of course. So we, we've seen a shift to that. we also seen, it's, it's hard to say, but I think through the years, uh, the Israeli army is using more and more live ammunition. I think it's also, in this demonstration, we have the army and we have the border police under the police, but I think because they brought in this uh, Roger weapon, uh, 022, 22, can you explain a little bit about what that is for people who, who yeah. don't know? Yeah, so it would be a live ammunition, but the bullet would be just smaller and lighter. So theoretically, if you shoot it properly and from the right distance, it could enter your leg and go out without making a collateral damage like a normal bullet. But it's a kind of sniper rifle, yes. right? Yes, but it should make less damage and not kill. But the problem is that they see this weapon as a crowd-dispersing weapon, not as live ammunition. Then people use it as it is the idea. Rather, the idea of the army, of course, sorry, uses it, and and it can kill from a certain distance, especially if it's shot to the head or to to the chest. So we we've seen, I think, through the years, we we've, we've seen different kind of weapons. As always, uh, we feel that the West Bank is a laboratory for drones and drones that shoot tear gas and different weapons and water cannons that shoot the stinky liquid and, and so on and so on. So, so, so this has been going on, on for years. In addition, we see also the rise of settler violence, and this is not only on day-to-day life, also in protests. In 2006, you wouldn't see it. Sometimes settlers would come to look over the demonstrations, but they wouldn't come to clash, and usually with the support or the backup, or at least the soldier keeping an eye on the settlers when they the riot. Uh, strangely enough, many times in these occasions, uh, the settlers, at least the extreme settlers, the hilltop youth as called, would get more confident and more violence when the army and the police are there, because actually when they are alone, there's a chance that people will manage to push them back. But with the army, they know they're backed up with uh, weapons. And in 972 local call, we exposed in last May a few events when army and soldiers were operating uh, towards Palestinians as one militia, basically. So this is one big change I've seen for the last 16 or 17 years. And of course, if we're talking about photography and media, so of course 
the, the, the rise of uh, cell phone photography. Although many photographers don't like this, uh, I'm very happy and glad about it, I think. Even if Activists or any other group had 100 members, we couldn't document everything, especially at night or early in the morning. And, and I think many of the iconic images we see today are, are filmed by the people themselves. And I think it's really important. What kind of images are you thinking about? I'm thinking about the shooting of Elora Zaria, who killed a Palestinian in Hebron, a soldier who shot a Palestinian after a stabbing attack when the person was already injured, he executed him. And this was filmed by uh, of a Palestinian volunteer. We're talking about settler violence. A lot of the cases happen when there's no protest or media around or anyone. Even in Masaf Regatta, a lot of documentation is by Nasser Nawaja, a field researcher of Betselem that was just a few days ago detained and harassed by the army and the Israeli security services because of his work there. So a lot of the things we see even in the military training in Masafariata or other things is by Palestinians who live at the place. Right. Masafariata being a firing zone in the South Hebron Hills where around a thousand Palestinians are at risk of eviction by the army. So if those are the changes on the ground, what about changes in the way the Israeli public perceives the images that you take to the extent that they are. When you spoke about Elor Azaria, I immediately thought of how when that happened, even though there was a large segment of people who supported him and wanted to defend him, there was still a pretty large public outcry from establishment Israeli military figures that that had violated the norms of the use of deadly force, which is something that the Israeli military and the police claim to take very seriously. I'm thinking only recently in comparison to this news story that broke, maybe it was yesterday or the day before, about how a soldier who was patrolling Gaza shot and killed an unarmed member of Islamic Jihad who was on a lookout post and then shot this person again while they were already on the ground. And that this piece was then published in Israeli media as a PR glorification of the military. So it's, that seems like a big shift in how the public thinks about the ethics of force. Yeah. The Elor Azra case was very strong because it was documented from the beginning till the end, so you could really see it, I think. It, that's always the problem, that it's very easy to focus on the soldier on the ground that did this and that, but of course the pilots who bomb Gaza, many of them are considered left-wing and vote for left-wing parties and think they're very moral. So talking about the Israeli public, I think when we started, we felt that there was this gap that people don't know. Today, we feel, or at least I personally feel that uh, it's not that people don't know, it's either they know and don't care or they don't want to know. As, uh, as writing say about the Nakba, it didn't happen, but we would make a second one. So. People kind of deny it, but at the same time don't really care or even threaten to, to do it another time. That makes our work more difficult. Personally, I still do it because I think when I go to a place, it's first of all for the solidarity to be with the people. And what happens later with the photos is kind of extra, but I don't always think it will make an effect inside the Israeli society. But of course, I'm still sending my message or trying to talk to the Israeli public with knowing the limitations of it. 
I'm curious a little bit now about your method as a journalist, because you have a unique ability to be almost everywhere, where if, if there is a protest or a clash or an event that's happening, you're there often before really any other journalist here has found out about it. I'm curious what your process is of, of sourcing. How do you hear about something that's happening? I, I'm curious about, as a journalist, what your practice is like. The most important thing is contacts and sources and people that know you and will inform you, different activists and other journalists and members of community inform us. And many times I would see, even on mainstream media, like a short line about something that happened, some small incident or killing or something that started when I would try to, to dig into it. And, and I think because we're in Israel and Palestine, so many things happen all the time. It's not only about knowing about it, it's also understanding what is important because you have to filter a lot because many things happen. There's always news here. If you talk to other photographers, there's always something to cover, not necessarily things that interest me, but there's always events and things political events, elections, the press conference. So first of all, it's important also to filter because sometimes you have too much information, especially in times of wars or escalation like in, uh, in last May, that you have too many things happen and you have to choose. So many times it's also important which angle to take to the story, to choose many times the angles or the places that not everybody's going to, so you can bring something more unique or more interesting or more important and also I think the second more important thing is to be on the ground. So many times when I go, as I said, so sometimes you take the same photo again and again, and maybe it's the same story, but by going around, you meet a lot of people and you also get a lot of stories just by being there, even going to a protest of 10 people here in South Tel Aviv or anywhere just by going to, to a place, even the event itself is, is very usual or even boring. Uh, sometimes you, you get a lot of information by, by going out and I know it's hard today because it's possible and it's easy to do journalism from home or from the office because you can talk to people, you can receive on WhatsApp images, you can see different lives and of course sometimes I do it as well but every time when you go out you, you, you get more stories basically. So on a regular day, what does is, what is a, what is a regular day in the life of Owen Ziv look like? There's no regular day, basically. There's always big projects I'm working on, photography and more investigative for 972 and the local call, Sichana Commit. Every day in local call, we start with a short uh, editorial meeting on the phone, like 15 minutes just to see what's happening and get updates. Usually in the morning, I will also check what happened during the night because, especially in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, things happen during the night, arrest raids, killing also house demolitions start really early, I would check that. Usually I would talk also to some colleagues that we work together, not necessarily from 972, but other photographers that I'm in regular contact to see what is happening, what is worth to cover this week. Then there's some days I'm just in the office or at home working and doing research or talking to people and many days that I'm going around and of course it's not only protests and other events but it's also court hearings and press conference and meeting and different committees or other kinds of meetings so, so it really changed but definitely because unfortunately many times in a year there's more times that are more tense so I'll be mostly in Jerusalem or in the West Bank 
for example, uh, this week I've been to Jerusalem, Jerusalem World City outside Al Aqsa because it was Tisha B'Av, and many right-wing and settlers went into Al Aqsa, into Temple Mount, and of course this created a lot of uh, tension. Nothing major happened. Hamas didn't shoot rockets, but still being there, see how they managed to bring thousands of people. When I remember 15 years ago, there were like 10 people and nobody cared about them. These being Jews and far-right Jewish extremists yeah. who are going up to the Temple Mount yeah. to pray, even though technically um, that's not allowed. Yes, not allowed by religion and not allowed by the police, but they're pushing the status quo. And yeah, the police, of course, operates in the old city around even free Palestinians who would shout something or protest or stand and look. So, so it, it creates a lot of tension. And, and while I was there this week, so another story happened that our colleague uh, Ahmad Rabli from AFP, a well-known photographer in Jerusalem, was detained just by photographing inside the Laksa when MK Itamar Ben-Gvir went in. We were just documenting him for quite far, but the police that doesn't really allow official media into Al-Aqsa, although everybody films there with their cell phone, detained him, beat him, and just after major pressure from his editors and other media, including us, they released him, and that became one of the, the stories of the day, because as a photographer that documents Jerusalem on a daily basis, and a Palestinian, he gets arrested and harassed quite a lot, unfortunately, so this is his third incident this year that he was injured or arrested. So, so this is a story that we're also following about freedom of press and photographers. Just by nature of the work that you do, you're exposed to a lot of violence, often direct violence, whether it's tear gas, rubber-coated bullets, live ammunition coming from the army, also rocks, Molotov cocktails coming from, from Palestinian demonstrators. So that's one kind of violence that, that you're exposed to. On the other hand, there's also, I guess, the more structural kind of violence that I feel like you have been able to witness. I'm thinking of the piece that you did in 2018 when you went to, I think it was Rwanda, and found that the Israeli government had a secret deal where they were sending asylum seekers who were mainly Eritrean and Sudanese, they were sending to the Rwanda, which was a major violation of uh, international law and uh, asylum protocol. How? Do you take care of yourself, not just in the physical sense when you're there in a dangerous situation, but over the long term, covering these kinds of things that are pretty disturbing? So first of all, I think the camera does give you some feeling, even if imaginary of protection and separates you a bit from the reality. So there would be photos I took, but I wouldn't want to look on them again. And I think it's one of the reasons I started photography, because it allowed me to keep going to the, these places because even if you're not doing anything with the photos later, let's say you throw the memory card or delete all the photos, still when you're there you feel you have some, some something that separates you from the very violent reality. So that's the first part. Second about physical security, so we always try to go a few photographers together and come together and live together so it doesn't always help because as we know many times, uh, especially in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the police doesn't really recognize freedom of press, especially towards Palestinian photographers. And many times, even if we're standing just a group of journalists, they would shoot tear gas or even other kind of bullets specifically at us or push us away or even arrest some people because it's a closed military area, as they claim. So many times we'll try to go together, of course, with all the protective gear, helmet and press vest and, and so on, although we see it 
doesn't always help us in the case of Shirina Wakle, a Al Jazeera journalist that was shot in Jenin with live ammunition, although she was wearing and marked as press. And about more emotionally, I think it's important that we have a group. You don't feel alone in the end of the day. I think a lot of what's hard about this is when you go to, to the West Bank or you, you go somewhere and you come back and the, the gap and the, the difference in the reality between what you document and where you live. And although I live in South Tel Aviv and it's a full of asylum seekers and <laughs> we had protests and racist attacks also in this neighborhood, it's also much different from the West Bank. So I think this gap is something that is, is really hard to deal with. And for me personally, the community, my friends, other activists and other photographers, it's really a way not, not, to, not to be alone. I used to think about that a lot when I would go out also to report in, in, in Nabi Saleh or in the South Hebron Hills and seeing these really hard yeah. scenes of violence. And then you come back to Tel Aviv and all the people are sitting in cafes and having fun and, and they have no idea what's happening on the other side of the wall basically. This kind of feeling is what gave us the motivation to do the first exhibition of factories and then to continue. And I think it's also a lot of the motivation why we do local calling Hebrew is to, to kind of maybe make this gap a bit smaller, at least to the people who are willing to hear, to, to, to bring some of this reality. And it doesn't have to be always the best bank. It could be here in Givatamal or here in South Tel Aviv. Of course, it's not the same like in the West Bank or Gaza, but it's also things that people prefer to ignore, although it's in Tel Aviv and, of course, in the periphery of Israel. So I think I only have a few more questions. Yeah. The second to last question is if there's anything that you're tracking now or big projects that, that you're working on that maybe we won't see their completion tomorrow, but that you might put out further down the road. Yes. So we're still working on the sixth organization, the sixth Palestinian organization uh, that the Defense Minister Gantz declared as ter- so-called terrorist organization last October, including uh, leading NGOs uh, like Adamir and Al-Khak in the West Bank, uh, trying to outlaw them and trying to convince European donating countries to stop funding them. And in a joint investigation of local call 972 and the Intercept, we exposed a secret dossier that showed that Israel actually didn't have any real evidence uh, claiming they were involved in terror. And since then, there's been a few developments also with the assistance of our publication. And just a few weeks ago, uh, the nine European countries declared that they will continue to support the organization. So this is kind of a long-term project that we are still following because now after this, we have to see if the countries are actually going to go and increase their support or just complete what they promised before and how Israel would respond. Would they increase their oppression against the organization and they raid their offices, which they did in the past, arrest their staff member. Now they're officially outlawed, but there hasn't been a lot of action made on the ground, although the declaration was enough pressure by itself. So we are monitoring this. On the photography level, uh, there's a few things, but one thing which is more a personal project, I'm editing a, kind of a series of panoramic images, more landscape, uh, less newsy things that I filmed in the black and white film through the last decade, looking on, on the landscape. And of course, it's, it's political and it's the same places I cover daily, but kind of from a different angle. In terms of political developments on the ground here, 
I think one of the perils of being a journalist is we're always attuned to the negative things that are happening and the violence and, and sort of the despair. Are there changes or movements or people that give you hope or that you're following with interest that they might develop into something bigger or more meaningful or more, more, more impactful? Yeah, I think there's many things that are optimistic down the way and first of all is to see the community and the activists that insist on staying and struggling despite very hard conditions. So it's something that gives me personally a lot of hope when I see people that are living in the most harsh conditions and under military occupation and are risking their lives who still have the energy and the courage to struggle and cooperate with Jewish and Israeli activists and even to speak to the Israeli public. So it gives you a lot of optimism and a lot of energy. More specifically regarding stories, I think it's a, it's a story we're recovering for a while and recently came up because of the attacks in Israeli cities by Palestinian armed uh, men, is the story of the erasing of the green lines. These are Palestinians who are able to cross through the fence yeah. or the wall. Yes. So basically, in the beginning, it was a few openings or holes that were managed by local people who would charge money and the army would close them but as military officials told us from the beginning they knew the wall cannot really prevent attacks because people can jump people can cut it and so on but as military sources tell us in the beginning where they would fix it and patrol because they wanted to show the high court that this wall is needed because all the story israel was selling this is a security wall so this was in the first year and it seems that in the last few years they just gave up so I've been last year in the wall during uh, Ramadan and during uh, the holiday Eid al-Fitr after Ramadan and you'd see just hundreds and thousands of people crossing to the beach when the soldiers are just a few meters looking and it's obviously something that happens also many people who hold permits to work in Israel prefer to pass through there because it's shorter than the humiliation in the checkpoint and during COVID while the PA was trying to close the West Bank Israel needed the workers so the use of this holes or openings increased during COVID. Now with the recent attacks, Israel closed these walls, placed soldiers in each spot. A few Palestinians were shot and killed while trying to cross as workers, not for any other activity. But despite that, we believe it will be open. I think it's also interesting to think about the, the one state or two state and how on the ground it's one state or one entity, not just because Israel is controlling all the territories and giving different rights to, to each population, uh, but also how physically it became one territory. Right. The separation that, in theory, you hear the Zionist left talk about all the time is not the reality. Yeah. And, and this is something else we're covering. It's also optimistic in mind. It's also the radicalization of the mainstream left, uh, kind of following the Balfour, the anti-Netanyahu protest, the, the Zionist mainstream left became much more radical with direct actions and more confrontations with the army and even the mainstream Zionist left shifted a bit, talking about the apartheid, talking about the Nakba, maybe still defining themselves as Zionists, but regardless, they're much more radical in other parameters. And you think that was because of their encounter with police violence during those protests. I guess they were in 2020. Yes. Following the anti-democratic step Netanyahu took uh, during COVID to temporarily close the parliament and shut down the court, especially to delay his trial and other measurements. So 
he had this wave of uh, protests and many people went through a process there, meeting other activists, more veteran activists that came with other slogans, connecting democracy to apartheid and to occupation. But more important, they were mostly privileged middle-class people that for the first time had some encounter with the police, blocking roads, attacking them, and also later lying in the media that uh, Netanyahu and his family and Likud calling them anarchists, calling them corona spreaders, calling them traitors, and these are people are from the establishment of Israel, people who've been to the army and feel part of the state. And at least we had tens of thousands in Balfour, but not a small group, hundreds or even a few thousands of them, followed to Sheikh Jarrah, to Masafariata. Some of them just do a tour or to see it, but some of them actually to weekly activities. And now if you'd go to, to a protest uh, in Sheikh Jarrah or another place, you'd see many new faces that you wouldn't see a few years ago. And this is something that is also very optimistic in my opinion. Well, with that, I think we'll close. Oren, thank you so much for, for talking. For those who want to see more of the work that Active Stills does, you can go to activestills.org. And also the special project on the erasure of the Green Line has just been published uh, both at 972 Magazine and The Nation. There's pieces by Amjadi Raki, Milon Rappaport, and um, Chagai Matar has an intro uh, for the section, which you should all be sure to check out. So that's it for this week. Thank you for listening to On the Nose.